Um, what we're going to do right now is we're going to get into God's Word. So uh, we started a series going through the book of Galatians. So if you guys wouldn't mind opening up to the book of Galatians, chapter 5. Uh, we're making our way through this. We come to a great chapter today. And what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to actually pray. I'm going to jump right in. We've got a lot of stuff to cover this morning. And uh, let's do this. Father, right now we just ask you that you would help us. We need your strength. God, we, we thank you that it is your good desire, your good pleasure to meet us. It is your good pleasure to love us through Jesus, to demonstrate great kindness and great uh, care and consideration for us. And God, even though we are uh, just undeserving, you continue to shower blessing on us and through us through Jesus, that every blessing comes through your Son. Pray, God, that you would help us to see that uh, in, in great evidence today through your word. So we just commit this morning in your hands. Uh, be glorified through our time together. And we ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, I'm going to actually jump right in this morning. And I'm, in essence, going to lead in with three main premises. And I'm going to just go through this very quickly. In some ways, it's going to kind of catch us up to speed with what we started last week. And then it's going to uh, just allow us to springboard into what we're going to be taking a look at today. Um, we're going to be taking a look at specifically around Galatians chapter 5, around verse 13. We're going to be reading all the way down about verse 20 or covering this large portion of scriptures today. Uh, the, the first of the main three premises I want to cover is, first of all, is that uh, in short, all of us, like the slide says, be up there in a second, um, all of us want to change. All of us, to some degree, want, need, desire change at some area or some place within our lives. Um, for some, it may be greater areas of change. For others, it might be lesser areas of change. For some, the areas of change are more demanding, meaning if we don't do something, if we don't act quick or soon and bring about change, it will not only destroy our lives, it will destroy the lives of other people whom we love. It may even destroy us within uh, our destiny, our direction of life, meaning we, if, if we don't break out of the gravity of the bad habits that we find ourselves in, we may actually find ourselves dying as a result of these things. Others of us, they're more innocuous, meaning they're not that big a deal. Uh, they're just major, or small, minor modifications of our lives. Uh, maybe like patterns of time where you wake up, you're like, man, I really want to be getting up at 6 o'clock in the morning, but instead you wake up at 6.30. It's not going to end your world. It's not going to destroy anything, but you're just like, I, I want to change. So what we're going to be taking a look at here today is the reality is that really all of us, to some degree, some way, shape, or form, we want to change. Um, one of the reasons, this is one of the reasons why um, a lot of us, uh, we go to therapists, we go to doctors, we pop pills, we watch Oprah, Dr. Phil, watch infomercials. It's one of the reasons why one of the number one selling drugs on the market today are antidepressants. It's because we realize we're depressed, we don't like our lives, we want to change. Uh, we wish something somehow we can just take, it would immediately alleviate any types of issues or circumstances, and we, some of us get so depressed, we just realize things will never change. Maybe what we can do is just simply nullify the pain, and that's what oftentimes ends up happening. So again, first premise, all of us, to some degree, way, shape, or form, we want to change. Second thing I want to point out is really true change happens uh, by the Spirit of God in us, true, lasting change. Uh, now, there are elements within our lives that we can change that in essence, we might look at and think, well, we just did this on our own effort, by our own good pleasure, by our own good desires. We changed things in our lives. Maybe we developed new habits because we just kind of had our own willpower set to that. Really, at the end of the day, it's God who's always at work in us, whether you're a Christian or not. It's always God's good gifts in us, whether you recognize it or not. Uh, those who recognize it and give praise back to God, those are called Christians. Those who don't recognize it um, are really just what non-Christians are. We 
all, all of us live under this realm in which God just demonstrates grace to us. He gives us abilities. Um, all of us have things that we didn't ask for. Uh, we don't deserve, but we have them. Who do you think gave you good looks if you are good looking? You have got good looks. You didn't ask for that. You didn't request that in the womb. You just got it, all right? And you know that you can leverage your good looks to get things. Um, other, others of you are ridiculously Yoda smart. All right, you didn't ask for that. You just got it. You can think things. You can create things. You can d- design things just from your mind. Some of you are incredibly skillful or gifted uh, with art. Um, you didn't ask for that. For some of you, you didn't even train for it. You just came prepackaged with it. And that's just how you came, all right? Um, and you, that was a gift from God. Where did you get that from? It was all God. It's all God. Uh, Christians are people that recognize everything I have is a gift from God. Thank you, God, for that. Thank you, God, for everything that I have. I'm humbled by that. And that's part of the reason why, in, in a sense, non-Christians, uh, people that have not recognized, that's part of what it means to be a Christian, is you recognize that everything has been given to you. It's a gift from God. And all the gifts that we have from God actually come down through Jesus brought back to his purposes, brought back to his design, and God made this possible through Jesus. But lest you think, because I don't want you to think that what I'm saying here is that the gospel's main purpose in our lives is just somehow a self-help program. It's not. But it does help us. It does change us. It does transform us. That's not its primary goal. It's to somehow just improve you. That's the way sometimes we treat Christianity. That's, that's not the primary thing that we should be looking at it as. It's actually making us right with God. And thereby making us right with God actually makes us right with others on more of a horizontal level. So one, we all want change. Two, true change happens by the Spirit of God. Happen. Uh, it's supposed to have an S there. True change happens by the Spirit of God in us. Uh, that's my bad, actually. Uh, and thirdly, true freedom, um, the Bible is actually going to tell us is that the way that we're changed, the way that we're changed is a very ironic way in which we're changed. We're not changed by external um, constricting reinforcements telling us what to do. We're not changed by God shouting orders down to us causing us to live under fear of him. That's not what changes us. I said this last week, that if you get a ticket uh, or you're driving in the street and you see a police officer, that's not gonna make you fundamentally fall in love with the lawmakers of the land being like, I'm so, so thankful for the law that says 55 miles an hour. I love lawmakers. It doesn't change the way that you love the law of the land. It just causes you to realize if you break that law because you just were reminded of the law because you saw the cop, which is the embodiment of that law, that now you will either fall into the judgment of the law, I mean, you'll get a ticket, um, or somehow you'll escape because, you know, the cop had his mind placed on something else. So the point that I would make is this, is that true, the way that God changes us is he actually frees us. Now, freedom needs to be defined. Here's what I mean. Freedom is not, all right, start with the negative. Freedom is not a state of independence. Sometimes I think we wrongly Uh, conclude that freedom has to do with being fully independent, meaning I can do what I want, I can say what I want, I can live any way that I want, that means I'm free. The Bible actually says that that's not freedom, because the reality is, is that if you have total opportunity to do anything that you want, you will at some point get yourself back into another slavery. Here's why. We are a cacophony of mixed desires, 
conflicting passions. We are. We don't even really know what we want. In a lot of ways, we're schizophrenic when it comes to what we really want. And our desires are always conflicting each other and butting heads with one another. We never really become what we truly want to be. So the Bible is basically going to say that true freedom is not independence to do whatever it is that we want to do. True freedom is actually to be enabled to be what we were created for. Okay? So the Bible is going to say true freedom is just not negative, meaning freedom from these bad habits or freedom from hell or freedom from sin. It is that. It's not less than that, but it's far more than that because true freedom is going to be saying that we are now brought back to be what we originally created to be. All right? Um, I was reading this story the other day about a goldfish that had actually fallen out of, you know, the master, you know, the owner's uh, master. I don't know if you can be a master of a goldfish, but you can be an owner of a goldfish, all right? It fell out of the, the little tank the goldfish swims in, right? And it was so ridiculous, the little thing that I was reading, this guy was just like, I think he even named it like Beethoven. He's all, Beethoven fell out of our tank, I came home, and it must have been sitting out for 24 hours, and when I found Beethoven, he was like behind our hutch because... I looked in the tank, and Beethoven's not in there, and I pulled the hutch out, and there's Beethoven. He's got lint and all this junk on him, and he's like breathing, you know, and I picked Beethoven up, and he's about to die, and I put him back in the water. It just came to life, and instantly, I'm like, this is ridiculous. Someone actually wrote, spent time and wrote this on the internet. What a waste of a life. I mean, but the reality is this. All right, here's back to the story. Um, Beethoven, I don't know how to call him Beethoven, but a fish lives. It comes to life. When it's free to be and do what it was created to be. Fishes were created to be in water, to live in water, right? Comes to life, right? Um, and that's, what, that's, that's how we were created. We were created to be something, to be somebodies, belong to someone, belong to God. And in this relationship with God, we were created to be loved by him, to know the love of God. So you might say, well, why don't we know the love of God? Well, the reason why we don't know the love of God is because actually we run from the love of God. I'll give you an example. That's exactly what Adam and Eve did when they sinned. Sin actually not only broke relationship between Adam and Eve, but actually broke relationship between them and God. Well, rather than feeling open and free and intimate with God, and, you know, but instead they felt like they needed to run from God. They needed to hide because they were guilty. They felt shame. That's what sin does. Sin, sin leads to guilt. Sin leads to shame. Sin leads to hiding. Sin leads to covering up. Sin leads to, the, to the, uh, duplicity, whereby we live two different lives, where on one level we act one way, on another level we act a whole other way, where we're not the same person. Sin leads to a sense of spiritual schizophrenia, where we're two different people, three different people, five different people in one body. We're not at peace. We're not at shalom. We're not at oneness with ourselves, with God, with anyone. We are constantly being broken, fractured, fragmented. That's what sin does. But true freedom comes whereby we're set free from all that, this negative stuff, sin, evil, wickedness, wicked desires, wicked passions, but free to be loved, free to be loved by God. Free to know that we're loved by God. Free to know that in, by being secure in the love of God, now we're actually free on a horizontal level to love other people. 
See, this is one of the reasons why some people might say, well, I don't, I don't need God to know love. I don't need God to, to be loved, to know love. Let me put it this way. Every other love, this might be a bold statement. Some of you might be offended by it, but I'm just going to say it. Every other love in this world, every other love in this world is actually a parody or a caricature of God's love. A caricature is like a, you know, you know, when you go to a fair and you see some dude like sit down and takes a picture or paints a picture of you. He's got, you know, let's say if you got semi-big teeth, in the picture your teeth are enormous, right? If you got kind of a little bit bigger forehead, your forehead is like that big, right? The rest of your face is disproportionate to the forehead, right? It's a caricature. It may have some resemblance of you whereby you can look at it and be like, ah, I can see you in there somewhere, but in some way... It's, rest of it's just inflated, all right? It's, it's not really you. It's not the, I mean, if someone were to be like, oh, that's you. That's the you I fell in love with. It's really not because no one wants to be caricatured. The point that I would make is this, is that every other love in this world is a caricature of God's. It may look similar, it may act similar, it may have elements that are kind of similar to it, but at the end of the day, it, it, it will not sustain you. This is why sometimes people who fall in love have a season, you know, of infatuation, we even call it infatuation, where, you know, a couple of days, a couple of weeks, you're just full of love. You feel, you're like light on your feet. People say your head's in the clouds. You're walking on air. We even have these words for it to describe it. Like, there's something that changes about you whereby you're, you're, you're in love, all right? You watch Bambi, you're Twitter-pated, right? Something changes about you. You're different. You're a different person. You're doing things you would have never done before. Life is different. It's good. It's really good. What I'm trying to say is this, is that one, we all want to change. Two, true change happens by the Spirit of God. Three, the way that the change happens is by being free. Free not to just be independent of whatever it is we want to do, but free to actually do and be what God created us to be, which is to know that we're actually loved by God. That's what the gospel does. It leverages us. It places us in a position where now we could know beyond any question or any shadow of a doubt that we're actually loved by God. Because we did something good? No. (laughs) But because Jesus is good. Because we purchased salvation? No. Because Jesus is good. Because we're religious? Not at all. You'll actually find, before we're done here, religion is actually part of the problem. Christ actually circumvents religion He puts down religion, puts down sinful activities, and brings us into a place whereby he frees us from religion, frees us from the sin that besets us, and actually brings us into right relationship with him, whereby now we are actually free to experience, free to live out, free to be what God created us to be, which is to be his sons and daughters loved by him. And the result of that is now that we actually love other people. So that being said, those are the three premises I'm going to start with. Now we're going to jump right in. First thing I want to do is what we looked at last week is how the gospel changes us. We said this, gospel changes us by giving us a new heart. The Holy Spirit comes inside of us, changes us. We're not changed by uh, being self-governed. We're not changed by being systems-governed, meaning having a strong religious background around us saying, do this, follow this, live according to this rule. That never changes us. It may make us do certain things, but it never changes the fundamental basics of our heart. We don't become loving people by just merely observing law. It doesn't make us better people. It doesn't change us. What changes us is the Holy Spirit. Now, what we're going to look at here today is 
really what the gospel changes in us. So what does the gospel change in us? The very first thing is that the gospel changes how I respond to the flesh. I'll explain what flesh is. I'm going to read the passages to you. First of all, we're going to read Galatians 5.13. Then we're going to jump down a few verses and take a look at verses 16 to 21. Here's what it says. It says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Verse 16. But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So already we get this idea that this, whatever this flesh is, we'll try to understand what this is in a second, it's bad. It's not good. And it's something that we don't want to gratify. We don't want to give into. We don't want to live or let it control us because whatever the flesh is, it has had control over us and it's not been good. That's what Paul's saying. Verse 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. And these are both opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. It's very interesting. Paul's actually addressing sort of the spiritual schizophrenia that maybe some of you are feeling. Because some of you as Christians are like, I don't get it. The deepest longings and desires of my heart are to love God. But why do I always do those things that are not loving for God, loving towards God? Maybe the deepest desires in your heart are to, you know, to, to serve God and to honor him and to worship him. But you find that once your feet hit the ground... <laughs> you realize you're not doing that. In fact, quite the opposite. You're doing the opposite. Rather than loving God, you actually find yourself doing things that are in contradiction to God. And you get frustrated. You get bombed. You're like, I don't get it. I feel schizophrenia. I feel like something's wrong with me. I feel like maybe I'm not really a Christian. I've got hope for you. Actually, the reality is, is that you are a Christian. That's evidence of the fact you are a Christian. There's an inner battle going on. It's a conflict that's going on between what Paul is going to say, the flesh and the opposite is the spirit. They're not equals, but they are opposite, all right? He's going to go on and say verse 19, uh, verse 18. He says, but if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. He's going to say sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, uh, envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul's making very carefully a distinction between those that are led by the Spirit. He's going to identify these as the Galatians. They're Christians. They love God. But though they also have these tendencies to go back to being led by the flesh. And then those that are actually within this world led by the flesh. So the real question to us that comes back to us is this. uh, What is the flesh? And here's my definition. The flesh really is uh, the way this world system thinks, acts, and works. It's the way this world around us thinks, acts, and works. Because you know, you might read that list, and you might be, you know, see, uh, you know, idolatry, sexual immorality, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, anger. You're like, dang, that sounds like my fraternity. Yeah, like, wow, that sounds like my office I work in. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. Like that looks like Fox News. Yeah. Like, wait a minute, that, that, that looks like NBC News. That looks like the Democrats or the Republicans. That looks like what I see on television. That looks like what's going on in Libya. That looks like what's going on in my house. Uh-huh. That's the way the world works. This is it. The Bible describes it as the lust of the flesh. It's how the world works. It's the system in which the world is. It's, it's the means. It's the matrix by which people just function. They work. They think of themselves. They take care of themselves. They put themselves first, and as a result of that, come strife, come envy, come being jealous. 
So in other words, if you have something that belongs to you or you feel like it's yours, you've got to fight to protect it. That's why. And you know, the more money you get, the more power you get, the bigger of arms you're able to actually build and, and uh, construct and establish, the more muscle you can flex, the more might you can actually uh, dominate on other people. And basically, you end up kind of fulfilling this whole list is what it is. Because some of you might be like, well... I've never been, you know, sexually immoral. But the reality is, Jesus is going to say elsewhere that even if you lust at somebody, you've, come, you've, you've you committed the sin in your own heart. So we can't get away from this. this. The Bible is basically saying this is the system of the world that we live in. And Paul ends with this whole little section here where he talks about the kingdom of God. You won't inherit the kingdom of God. This is Paul's basic way of saying what happened through the gospel is another kingdom greater than the kingdom of this world Broke in. Isn't that good news? Another kingdom that's bigger, stronger, weightier, better, broke in. And now is actually taking captives of those who were captive. Meaning, we're actually taking captive. Christians are those who've been taken captive by the true good king. Not a bad king, not an evil king, not a wicked king. Not a selfish king, but a good king. To be a part of his family. That's what's happened. And he's saying that those who don't have any kingdom transference, meaning you don't change kingdoms, you will find yourself on a trajectory going to a place because the natural course of life will actually lead to, sometimes people think of hell, I'm trying the best way I try to understand it, uh, give it to you. Sometimes people think of hell as like um, in, in God consigning, God saying, I hate you and I will send you off to hell. The same way that someone might say, I hate you, I'm going to make you go live in Stockton. <laughs> I hate you and we don't want you around here. We're forcing you out of slow and you have to go live in Stockton, the worst city, I think, in the nation. It's true. Do you know that? And I, I think it is. Nobody wants to live there. It's the worst place. I, I think hell is like this. Think of hell like a toilet, all right? You flush the toilet, it's circling, all right? If you're down under, it's going this way. Um, it's circling. You're in that mix, all right? You're in that mix. And you might be on the upper part, you know, but you're in the mix. You might be on the lower part where your life is getting closer. You're in the middle of the vortex. You're going down. You're on a trajectory, and unless something changes you from that trajectory, you'll go there. That's the fire that's burning already in our heart. The Bible describes it flesh. Flesh will lead to destruction because flesh is opposed to Jesus. Unless somebody comes in, scoops you out of there, you'll go to that direction. It's where you go, it's where it heads. It's already happening. The fires of hell are already burning in our hearts. They're already kindled. We're born and they're working. They're there. And unless somebody extinguishes them, unless a greater power comes in and rescues us, then we are already on that trajectory, already in that vortex, already on that path. This is what the gospel is. It is God rescuing us from this thing. The gospel actually changes the way that we respond to the flesh. Okay, so flesh is the world system. It's the toilet that's going around in this vortex, all right? Take a look at Ephesians chapter two real quick. Why don't you turn there real quick? Ephesians chapter two, I'm gonna read this pretty quickly. 
Here's what Paul says. He says, and you were dead in trespasses and sins, and once you once walked according to the course of this world. Uh, the word following, following the course of this world, that little phrase right there in our English, um, is actually a Greek word, aeon, and it basically means a, a direction. Um, the root word of this, the root meaning of this word, can actually mean a weather vane or this idea of weather a wind or a breeze, and the concept, I think, uh, from Greek is that you have this idea of a weather vane, and the weather vane just goes wherever the wind's blowing. The weather vane doesn't dictate where the wind blows. It just goes where the wind's blowing. So it might be going this way for a moment, and then the wind changes, and now it's going this way, and it is just the way it is. He says, that's the way that we were. That's the way the world works, the way the system of the world works. We walk according to the flesh. Again, in the toilet bowl, you're not going to break ranks and go the opposite direction. You can't. It's, you're just going with the direction. It's just you might hit bumps in there, and you don't even want to question what those bumps are. But the point of the matter is, uh, maybe it's a bad illustration. But the point of the matter is, maybe it's a great illustration. I just don't know. But the point of the matter is, is that unless something breaks that, then we're going down. We're going down. We're going in that trajectory. The point of the matter is, is the gospel changes that, and what it does is it pulls us out of that flesh system. And it sets us free. Here's what it says in verse 3. Among whom you once walked according, or lived according to the passions of the lust of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and you were by nature the children of wrath, as the rest of mankind. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Here's what Paul is trying to say, is that by nature, just by being human, being in that mess, being in that system. We're part of this system that's constantly, forever, going down this vortex. And at some point, unless we're rescued, which is what Paul's saying here, but God in good grace and God in good kindness actually pulled you out of that mess and put you on firm ground, whereby you may still feel the vortex. You may still feel. You know, it's like if someone spun you around on a stage over and over again until, you used to do that with our, our cat. All right, I had a dog or a cat even growing up. You hold them and you just spin around and you let them down and you walk. And I know I'm a bad dog owner, but you know, then they walk and they're stumbling all over the place. They're on solid ground, they're not spinning, but the reality is somehow uh, their equilibrium is off. And that's when God saves us, puts us on solid ground, our equilibrium may still be a little bit adjusted to the system where we're going around and around. So, again, this is what the Bible means for us to help us to understand how to walk so that we're not walking according to the same system. So what he does is he sets us free from these things. He sets us free from the system. Again, using the word freedom, freedom language. So it's not just negative, but Paul finishes in verse 10. It's positive too. He says, for you are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works. So freedom is not just negative freedom, meaning save from, save from judgment, save from guilt, save from the effects of sin, save from hell, save from God. But you're actually saved for good works. God saves you because the way he saves you, freedom is God bringing you back in alignment with himself, back in the way that he created you to be whereby you're loved. And your heart leaps for joy. Your heart knows, your heart realizes it's not because of what you've done. It's just that God loves to demonstrate great grace to those that are the most needing of great grace. <laughs> he just loves to give. He's a giver. He's a God who loves to give. And realizing that now that we are loved, we actually start taking on elements of the God who gives, who's generous, who's loving. This is why. 
fundamentally, when somebody becomes a Christian, they're changed. They can be people that maybe went from being cantankerous and angry and full of, you know, just wrath and always complaining about stuff to meeting Jesus to where maybe they still may have a little bit of that edge about them, but their heart changes a little bit. This is why it's very important to note, we'll be looking at this more in the next few weeks to come, how this works out, that if you're claiming to be a Christian and there's no real change in your life, meaning you're still just as cantankerous as you've always been, still prone to judge people as you always have, it might just mean that you're in a Christian context but it's, it might be like the sun shined on you, but it never penetrated you. It never shone through you. When the gospel shines through you, it penetrates you. It changes you fundamentally to the core. That's what we see here. It changes the way that I respond to the flesh. Okay, now there's two major ways in which people oftentimes try to respond to the flesh in more fleshly ways, all right? So because we live in a world that's broken, because we live in a world that oftentimes tries to usurp the authority of God, we still realize things are broken in this world. So therefore we realize we've got to somehow impose sanctions upon what we do and how we do them, otherwise you end up having chaos. Does that make sense? So in other words, if we live in a culture and a society where everybody wants to kill each other, everybody dies, all right? Only the strong survive, all right? It's not fulfilling Darwin, it's just the reality, that's just the way things work. The weak will end up being preyed upon and destroyed. So what happens even in a social context, totally separate from God, people realize we've got to set up some sort of rule somewhere. At the end of the day, all you're really doing at best is managing the flesh with more flesh. Two ways. One, legalism. Oftentimes you find this in religion or religious circles or religious people. They use legalism to somehow establish. They say, we shouldn't be sinning. We shouldn't be doing the things that we're doing. We shouldn't be acting the way that we're acting. We shouldn't be talking the way that we're talking. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put, uh, I'm going to impose restrictions upon you so that if you break these things, then a punishment will come. We won't let you in your club. We won't love you. We won't allow you to do the things that we're going to, that you want to do. We'll actually punish you. Uh, we'll mock you. We'll laugh at you. We'll, you know, pray for you at our little prayer meetings behind closed doors. We'll talk about how bad you are. Pray that so-and-so gets saved or whatever the case is. Blog about you. Tweet about you. Whatever we want to do. But these are religious ways, legalism, establish more laws, you set more laws to somehow manage the flesh. The second way, big word, antinomianism, basically just means without law, no laws. Anti, without, nomianism means law. Um, no laws. So this is basically a way of responding to the law. By, it's, it's, this equates to saying drive, driving down the street, you're like, I'm sick and tired of getting tickets, here's what we're going to do. At night, I'm going to go take down every single speeding sign everywhere and, and we'll be fine. All right, Let, let's, let's just say even they legislate that. Let's say our culture says, you know what? We want to help society, and we kind of feel like speed signs are bad. So let's just legislate in society and culture. We're just going to get rid of all signs. So here's my question. Will society be better? Will people actually care for each other now? Will, will people actually give the right of way to those that are maybe driving a little bit slower, be kinder? Will road rage still happen? No, because you didn't change the heart. You're just acting antinomian as opposed to legalistic, okay? All right, Paul tells us that the flesh does something and the spirit does something. All right, Paul uses the word here, uh, lust. Some of your translations might say lust. You got old King Jimmy, it says lusteth. I have no idea what that means. It's lust with an F. Okay, a lispy F. Anyways, um, 
the actual word for flesh is the Greek word epithumio. It basically means over, over desire, over, over passion. Um, that's why some of your translations will say lust. Um, when we think of lust in our culture, we think sexual. We think sexual, we, we equate lust with sexuality. Um, that's, that's, that's incorrect. That's not the way the Bible figures or conceives of this idea of lust. Uh, it, the, again, that's why the Greek word epithumio means an over-desire, over-passion. It actually tells us that both the spirit lusts and the flesh lusts. And what the Bible is presenting for us is that all of us are at sort of this crossroads in our lives. Either we're in a place where we are completely dominated by the spirit and he has lusts in his heart. I'll tell you what those are in a second here. And, or the flesh has lusts and we're dominated by the flesh. Well, if we're dominated by the flesh, again, here's what Paul says. He basically points out three categories. I kind of made up these categories, but the three categories, next slide, that he identifies different ways in which we are controlled or compelled by the lusts of the flesh. The first is sexual. He talks about sexual morality, impurity, sensuality. The second of which is spirituality, where he talks about idolatry or sorcery. The third is social. In other words, it has to do with the way that we involve ourselves or interact on a social level with other people. Enmity, strife, jealousy. If you're looking at your life and you're like, I'm always envious. I'm always jealous. I'm always go out in the fits of rage. Well, the Bible's actually telling you the source of that. The reason why you have those problems in your life is because you're actually being dominated by the flesh. The flesh is winning. It's getting the upper hand. Uh, fits of rage, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Some of you are like, maybe you've been to churches before, been in Bible studies, or met people that are very divisive. Uh, they're cantankerous. They love to bring up secondary issues and bring division. They love to start going to churches, and because things don't go the way that they want, they end up leaving those churches, and they create divisions when they leave. They send letters out to people when they leave. They cause commotion and problems. Uh, divisive. The Bible's going to tell us that these are actually actions of the flesh. Envy, drunkenness, orgies, uh, and the things like these. And Paul's point is that the flesh actually is lusting. It has desires, over-desires, longings, passions. And if we are just non-believers, meaning we don't know Jesus, these are what we live according to. This is our life. This is what's on the menu of our life. Now, for some of us, we were able to maybe suppress some of them. For some of us, we're good socialites, so we know how to conduct ourselves within culture, so we're not, we're not going to be going out and, you know, whipping out, like, sorcery amongst, like, Kiwanis Club. You know, like, we whip out like, a little hat, or we got our, like, little thing, we're, like, you know, bringing incantations forth. People are like, are you a witch? No, I'm not a witch. I'm a warlock. You know, it's like, we just don't, we're not, we're not going to do that because we know some people might actually think negatively of us, so we might be a little bit suppressed about how we uh, bring about these things and live them according to our lives, but the reality is, this is the way the flesh operates. But the spirit lusts too, if I can use that word without sounding in any way, in any way, uh, irreligious. I'm just trying to be as close as I can to the Greek to kind of manage the understanding of the word. The spirit also lusts. What does the spirit lust for? Paul tells us. He actually lusts for, craves, desires Jesus. The Spirit, with all of his power, with all of his might, loves Jesus. Jesus tells us that the Spirit's one whole purpose, ministry, job, is to bring glory to Jesus. So here's what Paul's trying to say, is that we were actually rescued from this toilet 
this trajectory, this vortex where we're going down, pulled out, put on solid ground, and given new desires. The spirit now lives in us. There's another force that actually is greater than the force of the toilet, the grave of evil of the flesh that plucks us out, saves us, and gives us new desires. It changes the way that we respond to the flesh. So that freedom in this particular sense is that now we actually have freedom to not live in accordance to the desires of the flesh. Why? Because there's a stronger desire at work in us. I love this. That's, how we, that's why Paul's gonna say, walk in the spirit, and you won't fulfill the desires of the flesh, the lust of the flesh. Because the spirit has a longing. His longing is Jesus. His longing is the glory of God. And you know if you're a Christian, that's the deepest longing in your heart. And you know that's why there's conflict. Because you find yourself in constant conflict between wanting to love God, wanting to serve God. But at the same time, there's also these other, it feels like you're in this, the, the gravity, the pool of something great. But what you need to understand, the gospel actually tells us there's something greater than the gravity that you're in. It pulls you out of there. It has the ability to take you out of the orbit of the flesh and bring you within the relationship with Christ so that your desires are singular. One thing I love about this is that the gospel actually allows us, it anchors us into having one desire, not 50 desires. Problem with modern life, we have so many things to manage in life, right? Mow the lawn, we gotta pay bills, gotta take care of mortgage, we gotta take care of kids, we've gotta make sure that soccer, football, baseball, kids get to those in time, we gotta make sure that school projects get done in time, we gotta make sure that um, you know, we make time to you know, record television and watch television, and we have all these things that are constantly vying for our attention. We can't keep track of them, can't keep up with them. But the Spirit basically says, I have one desire, it's Jesus. And we want to bring you to that place whereby you can sit at the feet of Jesus and love him the way that I, I love Jesus, the way that the Father loves Jesus. Consequently, that has secondary desires, the subordinate desires that sort of come out of that. And the second thing leads us to the second point as to what the gospel does is it, or how it changes us is that it changes us really uh, how we respond to people. This is really important. Galatians 5.13 starts out, it says, you were called the freedom brothers. And then in between the verse I'm going to read and finish up right here where it says, through love, serve one another, uh, are all these other verses that are sort of negative where Paul says, don't make, don't use your freedom as a means to, you know, make provision for the flesh. But I think if Paul were to just continue to thought and just go straight on to the positive, he would basically be saying this, you guys are free through love to serve one another. See, this is a huge implication because this means that prior to conversion, I'm not free to truly love and serve one another. It actually implies the fact that there's a big, major issue, a problem in our lives, and the problem is that I love myself too much. That's our big problem. I'm infatuated with myself. We're infatuated with ourselves. We love ourselves. We love mirrors. I mean, we're walking downtown. We're like checking ourselves out in the, in the reflection. We're like, I'm not looking too bad. I mean, we get a family photo, all right, or a group photo. The first person we go to look for, number one, right? We're like, how am I looking in there? Oh, man, I'm looking sweet. You're like, that's, that's who we are. We, we are so enamored with ourselves. That's our problem. It's a problem. We don't know how to love other people. We're not free to fully love other people. 
And we may think we are. And again, like I said, we may think we can have love, but the love that we tap into is merely a parody. It may look like it, it may resemble it, but it's not long-lasting. It's not forever and ever and ever. It's not, it may even be external. It does not really go deep down and penetrate the very nature of who we are as human beings. The gospel actually changes the way that we love other people. I'll tell you two different ways in which we as human beings are, are self-loving. I'll just point out two ex- extremes. All right, I gotta, I gotta show you a picture that I drew. All right, next one. All right, these are two people I want you to meet. Uh, Bob, Bob the Boaster and then uh, Gail the Grumbler. All right, Bob happens to be uh, the world's best farmer. He, he made that t-shirt himself and uh, he's proud of it. Works for FFA and he's a smart dude. Um, and, and the reality is, is, that, is that Bob knows it. He knows he's good at what he does. I don't know anything about farming or cows or anything like that. Just like making fun of him. But the point of the matter is, is that he knows he's really good at what he does. And he loves to boast about it. These are the type of people we love to hate. Like, I hate that person. He's always boasting of himself. But then at the same time, the equal opposite end is, is Gail the Grumbler. She's equally self-centered and equally self-concerned, but in a very negative way. In this way, she can only be concerned. She can't get past herself and all the negative things that are going on in her life. She hates the fact the way she looks. She doesn't like the way she has relationships with people. She feels ugly. She feels ugly inside. She feels ugly outside. She's not happy with the relationships that she has in life. And she's just, by and large, not not happy. You talk with her, and somewhere, somehow, the relationship, the conversation will always end up getting back to her. And the negative issues going on in her life. And both of these types of people in society are, are actually drains. They're difficult to deal with. Because the one common denominator is that they're both very, very self-focused. Very self-centered. So what I'm trying to say is that the gospel actually sets us free from the orbit of being consumed with ourselves. By allowing us to see how great God is. And by seeing how great God is. Having the new desires that God has to love other people. To love other people. This is why Philippians is going to say this. Let each of you look not on his own interest, but also on the interests of others. Have this mind in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Here's what Paul's saying. Christ came. He wasn't consumed with himself. I mean, if, if anybody could be, should be consumed with himself, who has the goods to actually be consumed with himself, it's Jesus. I mean, he's not like Bob the Boaster. He might think he's the best, but he's not. He might be the best in this generation, but you know, give it 40 years, another young buck is going to come up and actually be better than him. It's the way it is in life. It's the way it is with everything. There's always going to be a better musician that comes along. There's always going to be a better artist that comes along. There's always going to be another uh, you know, athlete that's going to come along and set a bigger, higher, greater record. There's always somebody better that's going to come along. But Jesus is the only one who's like ever came along who is at the top of his class. He's God. But he doesn't come with an entourage boasting of his greatness. He actually comes to serve people like us. Gospel actually frees us from ourselves, our self-consumption, our self-absorption. In fact, Romans chapter 13 is going to tell us that love for God and love for each other actually is the means which brings true change. Here's the way Paul puts it. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves has fulfilled the law. Hear that? He says the one who loves has fulfilled the law. You can actually say the one who's been loved and loves has fulfilled the law. Because he knows that he's loved by God. And therefore he loves. 
He's able to give what he's been given. He's been shown love, therefore now he's able to give love. And he's actually fulfilled the law. Uh, he says, for the commandments, you should not commit adultery, you should not murder, you should not steal, you should not covet. And, the, and any other commandment that's summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says basically this, when you love other people, when you love your neighbor, are you going to steal from them? Not at all. You know that most people steal from other people who they don't know? Do you know that it's actually easy? you know it's actually easy to be very critical of Obama and make fun of him and hate him? But do, but do you know that if you actually met the dude, I mean, I've never met him, but if, if he came up to you and be like, he saw you on the side of the road and he like gave you lunch money or like helped you or said, you know, hop in the car. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you out to dinner, man. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to do something really kind for you. Just shower grace, mercy, generosity on you. Do you know that it would actually be hard for you to now criticize him? It'd be hard for you. You know why? He did something to win your heart. He showed love to you. Now, that might be a small analogy, but the reality is, is that when you know that you're loved by God, and you know that God loves others that are within your circle, within your life, even your enemies, love actually fulfills the law. So rather than somebody coming in, imposing laws on you, saying, stop coveting, stop stealing, stop lusting, Stop getting drunk. Stop being an idiot. To actually have someone come to you and say, you know what? I love you. That's, that's mine, sorry. That's my law. Just tell me, shut up. Anyways, the point that I would make is this, is that when you know that you're loved, it changes the way that you respond to other people. And actually that fulfills the law. That's what he's trying to say. It fulfills the law. The third thing, and we're done, is it actually changes my fundamental position to God's moral law. That's what the gospel does. If you, you know, this is one of the big issues. I can spend a whole session on this, and I'm not going to, but the whole thing is, is that a lot of times Christians have a misconception of the law. They think, I'm, I'm no longer under law, I'm, I'm under grace. They, do, they say that because Romans 6.14 says that. It's true. But if the way that you understand that, I'm no longer under law, but under grace, if you understand that as meaning, I don't have to by the law anymore. I don't have to do anything that the law tells me to do. Now understand, uh, Jews have always understood different tiers, different levels of the law. The type of law that Paul's referring to here is what's called the moral law, meaning the way that we morally respond to other people, the way that we treat other people, um, that the way we are socially connected with other people, that if you look at this and say, I don't need to live according to the law anymore, then you misunderstood it. The reason why is because Paul oftentimes speaks in sort of thumbnails. In other words, Paul breaks things down and he uses sort of shorthand words, shorthand phrases to, um, to talk about collapsed ideas. In other words, Paul has oftentimes a lot of theology behind certain phrases. So when Paul's going to say, you're no longer under law, Paul's not saying, you're not under obligation to the law anymore. What he's actually saying is that you're no longer under the judgment that the law brought. The law brought judgment to you because you failed. You didn't keep the law. You didn't honor it. You didn't respect it. You didn't fulfill it. Rather than loving your neighbors, you cheated your neighbors. Rather than being kind and careful to them, you gossiped about them. You slandered people that you shouldn't have been slandering. You're an evil, wicked person. And therefore, you will pay the judgment of God, the just judgment of God. But the reality is, is that the law actually changes, or the gospel changes our fundamental relationship to the law. Let me put it this way. Again, I'll show you another diagram. Here's a diagram that I wrote. Next one. Next slide. Here we go. 
All right, here's Gail again, all right? All right, you get that? Okay, here's Gail. Gail is obviously laid out, brokenhearted, destroyed, because the law is crushing her. And the reason why it's crushing her is because, you know, Gail sins. She's consumed with herself. She loves herself too much. She talks about herself too much. She breaks the commandments of God. Therefore, she realizes that the law is actually crushing her. She broke the law. She's not keeping to God's ideals, God's standards. And so therefore, she is underneath the judgment of the law. This is what that means, that the judgment, God's standards are pressing down upon her because she broke them. She didn't keep up to them. So she feels that. She's brokenhearted. She's destroyed. She's completely full of despair. But take a look at the next slide. But what the gospel does actually fundamentally changes this. All right? So, yeah, take a look at it. You can laugh. It's cute. All right? So here's the reality. Gail's different now. She's changed. All right? Um, she's standing upright, she's got a smile, but don't let that fool you, because she still has her ups and down days. You know, sometimes she's sad, but the reality is overall, something's changed in her heart, she's different. Because here's what's happened with the law. Rather than the law bearing down upon her because she's uh, sinned, the law is actually, she's been changed in, its, in the placement of her relationship to the law. Rather than being under the condemnation of the law and feeling the weight of the law, fooling, living in despair and brokenheartedness, or the opposite, which was what the Pharisees did, which was arrogance and self-righteousness, but that wasn't Gail because she had a countenance about herself that was always feeling full of despair. The religious people, I didn't put them on there, they were always feeling righteous because they were always feeling they were keeping the law, but they really weren't. It was just an illusion. But the reality is that now she's changed because the gospel's come upon her. Here's what's happened. Her heart is put back together again. The Holy Spirit is in her heart, and in the heart of the Holy Spirit are the judgments of God. The law of God. The spirit, because he has lusts, he has desires, passions. The passions, lusts, desires of the spirit are to love God, to love God's judgments, to love God's justice, to love God's righteousness, to love God's holiness. But the Holy Spirit now has taken up residency within her heart. And guess where the law is now? It's in her heart. Gail's changed. She loves God. She actually loves God's word. She loves the standards of God. So when God says, love your neighbor as yourself, Gail says, I want to love my neighbor. Because you know what? God loved me. Someone might say, but your neighbor's an idiot. She's all, yeah, but I was an idiot to God. So your neighbor stole from you. She's like, I stole from God. I stole glory from God. But her neighbor's just like, Look, he's totally undeserving. She's like, but you know what? I was ill-deserving of anything God gave him. God showed kindness to me. And so the same kindness that God showed to me for which my heart's overwhelmed and changed, I want to show that same kindness and generosity to everybody around me. You know what happens? The law is fulfilled. Is she perfect? No. Because she still has conflicting issues. The lust of the flesh is still going on. It's still a fire. But she's got freedom now to not let it control her. You guys, I want you to think about this as I wrap, wrap this up. I'm going to have Mike come on up. I'm going to finish this up. So Mike, wherever you're at, come on down. I want you to listen to this passage in Isaiah chapter 53. I'm going to ask the question, how is it that our fundamental position to the law has been changed? How is it that we were put into a place where the Holy Spirit now has been placed into us whereby we can be changed? Here's what Isaiah chapter says, 53 says. He says, surely he, Jesus, has borne our griefs 
and he carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace. Out of anguish of his soul, he shall be satisfied. By the knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many accounted to be righteous, and he will bear their iniquities. What you need to understand is that what God did through sending Jesus, is Jesus came to the cross, and Jesus literally took Gail's place, laid out under the weight of God's judgment. Literally, the Bible teaches us that God struck Jesus. God literally crushed his son for you. You say, I thought it was our sins that crushed Jesus. Yes, he bore our sins. He bore our shame. He bore our evil, bore our wickedness. But because our wickedness also has on top of it God's holy, just standards and laws upon our sins who are on Jesus' back, Jesus bore the full brunt of the weight of God's wrath, punishment, smiting for us. And therefore, just as God treated Jesus... God now puts us in a place where he treats us like a son. He was crushed for you. So if you're in a place today where you feel broken, destroyed, crushed, ruined, please understand, it is not, it is either, it's either because you have self-imposed the weight upon your own self. You've set standards for yourself that you in your own Mixed, broken desires can't keep, and therefore you feel the weight of that, and you punish yourself as a result of that. And therefore you're underneath the weight. You're bound. Or systems-type organizations. A church has placed restrictions on you, has enforced things upon you, whereby you feel broken and full of despair and destroyed, but you're not free the fundamental attitudes of your heart hasn't changed. You don't love God. You don't love his people. You don't love being in his presence. You don't love loving those whom God loves. You just love to criticize them, and you feel guilty when you don't. God wants to free you. That's what Jesus came to do, was to set you free by changing the fundamental position that you have before the law to bring you into right relationship with God so that you can know that you're loved by God. I hope you know this. I hope you know the love that God has for you, that he crushed his son so that you wouldn't have to be. Jesus did this for you. We're gonna worship and respond. We'll partake of communion. Communion for us is really the tangible evidence it shows us in a very visible, tangible form. You eat the bread, you realize that this, my Jesus was crushed for me. His blood was spilled so mine didn't have to be. He bore my shame, bore my guilt, took my sin, bore the wrath of God for me, therefore setting me free to be in right, loving relationship with God. That's what we need. That's the medicine for our soul. Jesus, thank you for the cross. We worship you now. We cast care upon you. We respond to you out of love. Because God, people that are full of love, they sing. They sing. 
All love songs were written at some point when someone felt that little moment of love. That true lasting love comes when we know that we're loved by our creator because of what Jesus did by trusting in Christ, casting our sin upon him, and trusting it to him. That's when true change happens. True change is not just merely external. True change comes by being free to be who God created us to be. So help us now just to find ourselves, cast ourselves down upon you, to love you, to worship you, to give our hearts in worship and praise. set us free and the outworking of that is now we can do good works towards those that are unlovely and hurting people pointing them to the one that saved us the one that rescued us the one that helped us good news is action but Lord even before that it's news it's to be proclaimed to be announced so God I pray that you would help us to make us announcers of that in our lives people in our neighborhoods people in our circle of influence we need your help God we need your boldness for that but God at the same time good news just naturally happens it comes when we're affected by it so Lord help our hearts to be affected by it truly moved that's what truly changes us we couldn't free ourselves. We didn't free ourselves because we were dead in trespasses and sins. But God, you rescued us. You saved us. So Lord, as we leave right now, I pray that you would help us just to understand this reality that it's why we can't be prideful. We can't boast. We can't be arrogant. We can't be people that go out of here and are looking at others in a derogatory manner. We have nothing to boast of except the cross. So God, I pray that you'd help us to go out of here with great grace and power and strength from the Holy Spirit to carry out the desires that are within the Spirit's heart, which is Jesus, to love Jesus, to make that desire uppermost in our lives, that we wouldn't give in to the lust of the flesh, that lead to brokenness. But they don't have to lead to defilement, because God, every defilement we have, we just take back to the cross and remind ourselves of what Jesus did for us. But God, lead us to be people that walk trusting in your work. So be with our body as we leave. Give us strength as we leave. Pray that you'd be with all of our community groups throughout the county that are meeting all throughout this week. God, bring great grace and power and strength and love. Let it descend upon them. Let them just grow and be nurtured, serve one another, love one another, care for one another, each other's needs. God, those that are not in community groups, I pray that you'd help them to get jumped in, plugged into one where they can grow and become a part of that body you want them to be. We can be on mission together as a church, joining you. Not creating a mission, but joining yours. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. See ya.